Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to Let the Straight Show, everyone. Today is Thursday, August 6, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton, and joining me today is our fantastic intern, Ms. Zoe. Zoe, how are you doing today? I'm pretty great. How are you, Scott? I am doing fantastic. Thanks so much for running the boards for us tonight. Guys, we have a good show ahead of you today. If you missed last night's show, though... Had a wild ride. Zoe, I don't know if you were able to listen to last night's show. It was crazy town. We brought in, first we had our good buddies, uh, Josh and uh, Jeff from J&J Buzz in our Pop Culture Minute. That was fine. Then I brought in my good friend, Jason Stewart, who's a comedian and great actor. And he brought his friend, Mitch Hera. Um, They are starring in a new little web series that's on Amazon Prime right now called Smothered. They're two of the funniest people on the planet, Zoe, but they don't shut up. They were talking so fast yesterday, <laughs> I cannot get a word in edgewise, and they were talking so much that their phone dropped, so we, they, all of a sudden we couldn't hear them, and I thought, okay, they're going to call back. They kept talking to themselves for 12 minutes before they realized that they dropped until they called back in. We had to play three songs oh before God. we got that. It was crazy. Oh, it was hilarious. They are so funny. Oh, you got to see the show called Smothered. It was a great time, and you got to listen to last night's episode because it was pretty funny. And so we finally got them on. So we had a great chat with Jason Stewart and Mitch Hera to talk about their show, Smothered. And then we talked financial strategies with my good buddy, Joey Amato. And it was just a juxtaposition because we had this manic interview with Mitch and Jason. And then Joey and I are talking finances, which is not the most exciting topic in the world, right? So (laughs) it was a very interesting show yesterday, to say the least. But you should still go download it. It's available to all the major podcast distributors. You go to Apple iTunes and Podcasts and Google Podcasts and iHeartRadio and Anchor and Stitcher and all those fun things. Hit subscribe when you do. 
Exactly. Spotify. I'm right. That's where all the cool kids go these days. Spotify to stream all their fun stuff. So you're right. So be sure to check that out tonight in just a couple of moments. We're going to have a mental health minute with our resident Jacob Talego. He is a certified counselor, has his own practice here in Northeast Ohio by me. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID again tonight. And then we have just one interview tonight, a live interview with a romance author. Her name is Melissa Braden, very prolific, um, 12 novels. Zoe, you did a lot of the research on this for us, and she's done quite a bit of stuff, huh? Oh, for sure. And I've read a few of, well, a good number of her novels, and they're really, they're really good. Nice. I like it. I did not know that. That's kind of cool. All right. Well, we got just a couple seconds before we're going to go ahead and play our mental health minute. Are you a Big Brother girl? Did you watch Big Brother premiere last night, Zoe? Um, I was, and then I'm not anymore. So, but I definitely know a lot about the show. I'm the same way. I kind of got out of it. It's always, uh, I don't know. It's so much drama anymore. So I, it's an all-star edition. So I was kind of excited. I did record it last night. I just couldn't gather up the energy to watch it today. But I, I am kind of interested because it's an all-star edition, so you have some of your favorite people in there. I don't know who the token gay guy will be in this one. I haven't seen the cast <laughs> yet. But uh, it's interesting. I mean, I like me some reality TV on occasion, and I'm like you. I've liked Big Brother in the past. I honestly don't know who's in this all-star season, but I'll give it a shot. Sometime this weekend I'll watch it. But if you haven't given I definitely me a agree about vote of confidence. What's that? I was just going to say, I definitely agree. Like, I like reality TV sometimes in, like, doses. And I think the all-star seasons are always really fun if you know some of the people that are coming back. Right, exactly. So we'll see what happens. I'll check it out this weekend, decide if I'm going to uh, take it off of my record list or not. But I did record it last night. All right, we ought to jump into it because I know we got a little bit of time here for Jacob's um, Mental Health Minute. We recorded this a little earlier today, so we're going to let that play in just a second. And when we come back, we're going to listen to Jacob's Mental Health Minute. We're going to play a song immediately after that. And then we come back, Zoe and I are going to be talking to the aforementioned romance author, Miss Melissa Braden. She's got some good stuff out there. We're going to talk to her all about it. So you're listening to Let's The Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right into our Thursday Mental Health Minute with our special correspondent right here from my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio, Mr. Jacob Talego. Jacob, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Things are going well here. How about yourself? You've been pretty busy, I understand. Oh, yeah. Staying active, staying busy. I'm telling you, with all this COVID-19 going on, you know, business is booming, unfortunately. Well, I appreciate you always taking the time. And uh, why don't you go ahead and jump in and I'll listen to what you have to say here. All right. Sounds great. Well, welcome. Thank you for listening in. This is another Mental Health Minute with yours truly, Jacob Talego. I'm the CEO and psychotherapist here at Mind and Body Counseling Solutions in Boardman, Ohio. Go Penguins. Tuned into the last couple weeks, we've been talking about coping with the coronavirus. And I want to continue on that segment today because 
it brings us to a kind of a twofold uh, subject, COVID fatigue. So what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, so if we break down the words COVID, we know what COVID is. It's the COVID-19 outbreak that occurred months ago, you know, and it's a respiratory disease, yada, yada, yada. We know all that. And fatigue. So what is fatigue? So in mental health, when, we, when we're looking at things like fatigue, it's very much associated with depression, feeling sad, feeling out of energy, no motivation to do anything, lethargic, quiet, irritability. Right. There's some mood components to it as well. And uh, so fatigue is something that can be chemically induced. It can be induced by hereditary or if depression runs in the family, it can be all kinds of things. It can also occur when crisis happens and when crisis happens for a long period of time. And that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about COVID fatigue. That's just right. you're over it. You're exhausted. You're just drawn out. You don't want to do anything. And, and, and that's where the conundrum kind of, the twofold conundrum kind of comes in. Because the state and federal standards, what do they tell us? They're telling us stay at home, socially distance, isolate yourself. And us mental health therapists are going nuts. We're saying, no, don't isolate yourself. Stay active. Stay, you know, engage as much as possible, but also stay cautious. So it's kind of – and when the government continues to put these standards, people only see it from one lens. You know, They see it as, oh, I can't do anything, and oh, I can't go anywhere. Oh, I got to wear a face mask. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. And it gets overwhelming over time, and especially for those that already have predetermined uh, mental health diagnoses. It makes us more vulnerable to things, and we all know how vulnerability can treat ourselves. We can get into dangerous activities like drugs and alcohol and yada, yada, yada. The list goes on, so on and so forth. So fatigue is the the thing that I'm – and we don't know how it's going to play out either. You know, the government tells us one thing every other day, and everybody's still on edge. So I go back to coping with the COVID, as we talked about last time. Do everything you need to do to stay normal, so to speak. And I use that term loosely because I don't really like to be normal or describe it as <laughs> normal. But stay active, stay healthy, keep your routines, you know, but do them with caution. Bring hand sanitizer, throw it in your pocket, throw it in your purse. You know, throw it around your neck, put it, make it into a necklace, stay active, but stay cautious. That's the number one thing to cope with fatigue or to cope with anything. And the other thing, if you're experiencing levels of fatigue, is make sure you're talking with your doctors, particularly any psychiatrist. Make sure you're up on your medications, you're getting things filled. You know, I, I, I'm not a doctor, so I can't speculate much about medication, but... I know that sometimes people need increased medications at this time, and that, and that's okay. You know, sure. so those are some things to worry about. Um, also, another thing that causes the fatigue is our extreme lifestyle changes. You know, for the first time in history, we're not allowed to socialize, which may be fun for some people, but for the majority of people, it uh, changes their mood. It changes their stressors, it increases their irritability, and yada, yada, yada. 
And uh, so lifestyle changes, that's a big stressor to COVID fatigue. Also, it has a big change in family dynamics, kind of like what we talked about last time about the socialization and the mandation to stay home. That changes everything within the family. And, again, that goes along with increased vulnerability, underlying mental health conditions. So all of this together is very, very – we all need to be aware of this, of these things. And I I think that's where it starts with is awareness and just staying proactive and talking to each other too. That's another good thing. And really to segue into the next part of this segment um, is school, you know, and, and uh, this really affects me as a, as a practitioner because I specialize with kids. The 99% of my population that I work with, our children. So uh, talking with them as it relates to school is a big issue right now. And we don't know what's going to happen. And that's another thing that makes all of us vulnerable, you know, is the fear of the unknown. Whether you have anxiety or not, everyone's afraid of what they don't know, perhaps, you know, in a sense. And so that's a big stressor going on. And that influences all the topics that we talked so far. You know, it changes family dynamics, lifestyle changes, especially for single parents that, you know, rely on school, you know, as a part so they can go to work. And, you know, but we have seen some good resources in the area already begin to be implemented, like the food giveaways, the drive-through food giveaways. That helps a lot of the low-income people. Um, with replenishing those food because, again, that's another family dynamic change is they don't have lunch anymore prepared for them. And, that, and yeah, that might seem like an easy thing, but when you're a single mom and you have a house with three, three boys that are in high school, I mean, you know, they, that changes a lot about family dynamics, just one little thing like food. And so that right. is a big stressor for kids. So I tell all the kids, I, you know, in my therapies across the board, I always say to everybody, and, I, I, and this is not pessimistic, but I always say, you need to prepare for the, the worst. Call me Murphy, you know, Murphy's Law, if you, if you will. But you should always prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So that's what I do with my kids. I tell them, expect to go online school this year. And that needs to look a little bit different. So what I encourage the parents and the kids to do is set up an office school space at home. Make it similar to school if that helps the kid adapt a little bit better. And the routine, your routine is explicit. It's so important for your mental health, among other things. Get up like you're going to school every morning, except you just get dressed and go in your classroom or in your bedroom or in the dining room or whatever that area is. And so this is important for parents. Parents are going to have to be more proactive than ever to make this work. But I believe that it can work. And I also believe that this is probably the safest bet for us to do right now, which, you know, being a sociologist, I'm all about interacting, get out there, talk, get into fights, get into trouble, learn how to emotionally regulate yourself in this chaotic world that we live in. But right now I kind of pull back on that a little bit because of the COVID crisis that's occurring. So three things that I'm telling my patients to get through all of this. Well, number one with the school, watch the news, 
stay active. Have a plan in place already. Sit down with your parents and talk about what's going to happen this school year. That's going to give you the best start to anything. And also, number two, you know, like I always say, be proactive. Stay busy. Keep establish and maintain a routine. That is important through anything that makes us vulnerable is to keep doing the same things. Your brain will like it at the end of the day. It may not feel right. any better. It may not get any better, you know, with this COVID. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But all we can do is focus on today and get through today. The, the, the most fun thing that's kind of the epitome of my agency, and I tell everybody, laugh, smile, love each other. It's not the end of the world, although it may feel like it at times. We have to, you know, we have to keep our energy flowing. And the best way to have your energy flowing, as science shows us, is to smile and to laugh. So those are my words of wisdom for the day. I like it. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that, Jacob. And let everyone know where they can kind of contact you on social media, even though they might not be in the Youngstown area like we are. If they want to reach out, how can they reach out to you? Um, They can reach out via Facebook. We have a Facebook page. It's called Mind and Body Counseling Solutions, and we're located at 5621 Market Street in Boardman, Ohio. Um, You can also email us at mindandbodycounseling at gmail.com. And our telephone number here is 330-781-5078. Terrific. Appreciate to have you on the show. Thank you very much for uh, calling in, my friend. Yes. Yeah. Here's my word of wisdom for the day. This is, I need to write this down and publish this. <laughs> when life gives you lemons, make fruit punch. I like it. That's awesome. <laughs> I'll elaborate. All on right, that. my friend. <laughs> I appreciate you calling in, and uh, we will talk at you in two weeks. Thank you very much, Jacob Talego. Yes. Thank you. Stay safe. Smile and. I'll see you next time. All righty. We're going to go ahead and play out with a little bit of Fly from our good friends Unsung Lily. And when we come back, we're going to have the amazing romance author, Melissa Braden, on the line. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Give me all you have, but I'm still breathing. But I hold on to the We can fight all night, but I'll still be there. Gonna hold on tight until the end. But I'm out.
She's a prolific author of romance novels with 12 published titles on her resume. She's also dabbled in storytelling and other mediums such as film and documentary work. Her romance series have compelling characters and story arcs that has made her fans really identify with and want to hang out with some of her key characters like Hunter from the Soho Loft series or Jessica Lennox. When not writing, you may see her with a cup of coffee in one hand and petting one of her adorable little Jack Russell Terriers with the other. She's also thoughtfully going through the latest rap lyrics from time to time, which I have to find out about that. So let's welcome to the Left of Straight show for the very first time, the lovely and talented Miss Melissa Braden. Melissa, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. I love that intro. Well, welcome to the show. You deserve every sentence of it. You are an amazing writer. Uh, You came to our attention through my intern, Zoe, who has read quite a few of your books. So good on you. How is everything going your neck of the woods? Well, I tell you what, it's a little different, probably the way it is for everyone everywhere at this point in time. Things are a little strange, but uh, my job has always been pretty much me and a laptop writing stories. And so that part luckily has not changed um just doing it a little more indoors these days you know i bet and i mean you're in texas there would have this second wave or elongated first wave whatever you want to call it um now you're a mommy have you always cooked or did you do you miss going out to eat I, that's what i miss the most is going out to eat no i'm a booty person this is, 
I'm a big foodie person. I'm like, I like to read the blogs. I like to hit up all the hot spots and the good restaurants and find all the small plates. So for me, especially, you know, when this hit, I guess, back in March, it was a big adjustment to not, you know, get to go out and, uh, and hit all of my favorite spots up. But luckily, you know, I'm in San Antonio. And so the curbside business has gotten pretty good. You know, they're sending us home with the, the house-made margaritas, uh, to go, which we've never had before. So I'm trying to look on the bright side and still bring in all the good food uh, that I used to. It's just not out in the restaurants the same way. There you go. I've been doing the same thing. I like it a lot. Uh, it's It's been interesting where you can get the little alcohol takeout. And as long, my, I'm the same with you. I love the margaritas. And I've had two successes and one failure where I basically had some margarita soup by the time I got home. But other than that, it's been oh, pretty yeah. good most of the time. Yeah, well, and you, you figure out your, the good-to-go places. Exactly. So this is your first time on the show, Melissa. Let's go ahead and start with a little bit of background. I understand you were in an Air Force family. Did you move around a lot? Where do you consider home, and what kind of a kid were you growing up? Well, definitely from an Air Force family. I'm the youngest of three girls, and I was uh, pretty much a, what you would call a quintessential tomboy who liked to play all the sports and skateboard and I could drop in on a full-sized half pipe ramp when I was 12 years old. So uh, I I was was not a shrinking violet, Um, but yeah, we moved, I guess about every three to four years. I went and then my dad retired when I was a teenager in San Antonio. And so that's also where I was born. So pretty much we would move around and we'd come back to San Antonio and then move around and come back. So I would say here in, uh, in Texas would be my home base, but yeah, living abroad um, in England for four years and some time in Florida. So we were we were all over the place. Oh, that's fantastic, though. I, I kind of love that mm-hmm. diversity. My mom lived in England for a while and absolutely loved it. Uh, what kind of experience did you have over there in the U.K.? I, I, was, um, I was a big fan of it, actually. I was there from the ages of, I want to say, 8 to 12. And so when I first got there, I didn't know anybody. And so I started going um, – walking up the street to the base bowling alley when I was eight. Right. Uh-oh, we might have. European Junior Bowling Championship. A bowling championship in London? That's exciting. Talk about Well, no, and I won for the continent of Europe. I traveled to Germany to compete. So it's my little childhood claim to fame. Oh, I love that. Now, talk about your realization at eight years old. Is it is it weird going to another country where you're, they're speaking your language, but there's an accent? I always wonder what an eight-year-old, how that's perceived through an eight-year-old's eyes. Was that kind of interesting? It was interesting, but the cool thing was is that I was I was on an Air Force base, so everyone spoke with an American accent until we would venture out. And then that would be the shell shock moment where it, it would be kind of a wake-up call to, hey, we're not stateside anymore. But then once we got a dose of that, we would come back to the base, and then uh, I would feel a little bit more at home. But, you know, the longer we were there, the more comfortable I got with it, and then it was just everyday life after a couple months. Sure. That's awesome. I love that. Well, I talked about a little in the intro. I mean, we're going to talk about your amazing plethora of books here, but you've actually done some film work. You've done all sorts of storytelling through documentary and film. Talk about how that career came about and uh, what you liked about it. 
Well, it's interesting. The way it came about, I was um, I went to Baylor University and I was a, a film major. And, and shortly after, um, I, I was in weddings as, as bridesmaids and maids of honor. And wedding video was what pulled me into that. And uh, I, I thought, I could do this. I could tell these cinematic love stories. So I, I opened my own production company and started shooting multiple weddings every weekend and then started picking up legal videos throughout the week. And then that led to corporate videos and then some more creative projects. And so it was just always um, a hodgepodge of, of different activities. But what's interesting and what ties into what I do now is the fact that I can kind of look back over all the jobs I've had and every single one of them has had to do with storytelling in some way or another. And so I look back mm-hmm. at the film stuff and the videography and it was just a way to do that visually, but it was all about, you know, either telling the story of someone's wedding day or telling the story of the, the, the plight of their lawsuit or their testimony or, you know, how to sell the, the, the latest gadget. So it, it all kind of goes together, and it's interesting to look back over and, and see that tie-in. Oh, I can imagine. And talk about the storytelling. Was was that part of the family dynamic? Did mom and dad tell a lot of stories? Were you a writer growing up? Did you like? Did you kind of have your own little um, fantasy land and write your own stories? How did this knack for storytelling come to you? You know, I think if if I were to boil it down, we were theatrical. We weren't necessarily um, verbose and sitting around a table and telling each other stories, but my sisters and I, my parents too, we we liked to, to perform. We liked to, you know, the huge musical theater geek. So I was standing on my toy box when I was three years old and belting <laughs> out, you know, tomorrow with Annie from, from the record player. Um, and so I think it comes from that and our love of theater. My parents started taking me to Broadway shows when I was seven. Uh, and so I think that cultivated a love of, of this fictional world. And it's interesting. I, I'm a full-time writer now, but I, I wasn't ever anybody who was drawn to to the written word. I mean, I did good in English class, but I never took a creative writing course. Um, mm. I, I was the theater kid, however, and I was a director. I have my master's degree now in theatrical directing. Um, so that was always there. And I think that that kind of just fed me towards the writing eventually. It was only a matter of time. Well, talk about how that first book came into being. How do you kind of figure out that structure and form? What was your uh, kind of first foray? Did you kind of totally wing it by ear? Did you read books on the subject? Did you look for mentors? How did this first book come together? Yeah, it's interesting because, and I've said this before, but I, I feel like I had no business setting out to write a romance novel when I did. And at the time, I was <laughs> um, I was teaching high school theater at the time, and I had a summer break. And I, I think I was just looking to scratch some sort of creative itch. And I was a romance novel fan growing up. I was I was reading my sisters, you know, Danielle Steele and uh, Nora Roberts and sneaking off when I was too young to read those things into the bathroom and locking the door. Uh, so I was really familiar with, with, you know, the structure of a romance novel, but only from a bystander's perspective. And so when I sat down, um, the first thing I ever wrote um, was my first novel that got published, Waiting in the Wings. And I just kind of wrote what I wanted to read. And, and there were some missteps for sure, um, because I've you know, at the end of the day, decided, well, you know what, I will go and submit this to a publishing company. And, you know, never in a million years thought they would take (laughs) it. And uh, 
I guess they saw something in that book as unpolished as it probably was to people who know what they were doing. And they decided to give me a chance and they gave me a, a great editor for a first time novelist who taught me some basics that maybe I was missing. Uh, but maybe they saw through some of the, uh, the the mistakes that I was making to see that there was a decent story there that we could cultivate together. And um, yeah, so the first publishing company I took it to, which is Bold Strokes Books, the, the publishing company I'm with now, um, was nice enough to accept it. And we've had a fantastic relationship ever since. And so I, I, I that was over 10 years ago. And so you know, since then, I do think I got a lot more serious about craft. I mean, you mentioned, did you read books? Did you did you figure out how to do this before you did it? And the answer is I should have, but I, I, I unfortunately didn't. <laughs> I, I, I did it a little backwards, but I have come back around to it. And I'm a firm believer in continuing to learn as I grow as I go so that I can continue to grow in my my career and my journey as a writer. That's amazing. And we have our intern Zoe in with us on the interview, and I think she has a question or two. Zoe, go ahead. Awesome. So I was wondering for you, what's the importance of like queer storytelling and like lesbian romance novels specifically? I think it's, I think it's hugely important for the queer stories to be told more so than the straight romance novels that I spoke about growing up with. I think those are a fantastic escape for younger people and older people to read about love and uh, the ideal. But I think when we're, we're speaking about a queer audience, there's a larger calling there. And we're talking about um, readers who perhaps are living in a country where it's not safe to utter who the words who they are or to speak their truth or to find a partner or to date that would be against the law. They would be putting themselves in danger. And I, I get emails from those readers quite a bit more than I would have guessed saying, I can't be who I am where I live. And these books save me. I can see myself and this, this character and I don't feel so alone. And it, sometimes you get caught up when you're writing what to you maybe feels like, a fun, warm, um, flirty story. But when you get an email like that, you realize that it's much more than that. And even, even stateside, when you, you hear from a, a younger reader who's, who's figuring out their sexuality and who they are, and they pick up a book that answers a lot of questions for them, I think it's just a whole different ball game um, when we're talking about lesbian romance. And so I, I think over the years, I've made sure that I'm very aware of that and understand the importance of what we do. And I don't laugh off my job and think, oh, I just write silly stories because I know that in the scheme of things, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger mission. And so we, we can't forget that. That's amazing. Very powerful. I love that. Well, let's talk about Waiting in the Wings. And that book and To the Moon and Back both take place in the world of professional theater. And you talked about theater being one of your interests, how does your personal experiences kind of inform the settings of your novels? Are these all taken from some snapshots of your life? Yeah, I think you can safely say that. Um, with Waiting in the Wings, that was the first book I wrote. So immediately I, I wanted to write about my favorite topic ever, which was theater, because I was obsessed. It was my job. And like I said, it had been a part of my life since as long as I can, you know, climb up on that toy box and sing Annie. Um, 
so thinking from a reader's perspective, oh, I just wish there were you know, this lesbian romance novel with theater in it. I'm going to write it. I'm going to be the person to do it. And I think I had read one in the genre that took place in the world of theater. And I just felt like it didn't go very deep. And I felt like the author um, only kind of scratched the surface of what it is to, to work on a show. And so I wanted to make sure that it was present. And so when I chose the characters that I did, which were in that book, Jenna and Adrian, um, I wanted to put them on a grander stage than ever I had been on. They, they were going to be larger caliber Broadway actors. Um, but it, it was okay because I had, I had the background enough to know how an actual show would be put together. And I was obsessed with Broadway enough to add on to that, everything I had learned by pretty much stalking that community. I think, you know, when I was uh, in my twenties, I was taking trips out to New York city four or five times a year, just for theater trips, just to see shows. I, and any money I made would go towards that. So I felt like putting nice. those two worlds together I had to do very little research for Waiting in the Wings. And then, you know, I guess a good eight, nine years went by before I wrote, I guess probably nine years before To the Moon and Back. And um, I went regional theater on that because I've always romanticized those older houses, you know, like Paper Mill right. and uh, kind of kind of modeled it after after you know those, those great houses. And so that, that was um, a fun foray to kind of, go back to my stomping grounds and where I first started as a writer. And so those were easy books to write in terms of research. It was great. That's awesome. And to piggyback on what Zoe said, I mean, Soho Loft and Seven Shores, we get to see uh, the characters fall in love. But if you kind of take a macro view at your books, you also get to see queer friends who really support one another What's the importance of showing those friendships? Is it kind of going what you said before? I just think it's so great to see in a romance novel that kind of support in a community-type setting. I, I completely agree, and that's one of the reasons I continue to drift back to the series work. A lot of times when you work in a world for a while, even though you love it there, you, you kind of get um, a little um, anxious for a new world to write within. But I always come Mm. back. And the reason is just what you zeroed in on, which is those female friendships um, are just as important to me, I think, as the the sensual romance. I love those friendship backdrops. I love seeing them there for each other. I like the friends getting to have their own shorthand and inside joke and um, understand that their community is, is hugely important to who they are. And so even when something goes wrong in the romance and the conflict rears its ugly head, those friends are going to be there um, for for the main characters. And so I think uh, my series work is kind of a, a love letter to, to friendships in a way. And um, I was just coming to the conclusion of uh, the Tangle Valley romances. I'm writing book three, which is the final book in that particular series now. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I, I'll need a break and, and I'll need to do some standalone books for a while. But I know in the back of my head that, I will circle back to a series soon because I want to pick up with a new group of friends. I bet. And talk about that a bit. I mean, your books do make reference to one another. They, you do have some series books there. Um, the characters will pop up in a different novel. Do you mm-hmm. have any like little Easter eggs you hide for yourself and your listeners that uh, people might catch up on or they might not? Are they a little fun for you? Have you ever kind of done something <laughs> like that with your series? Yeah, I think um, every single book I write has at least one Easter egg from another book of mine. Some of them are quite overt, 
Um, and it could be an essential character from another series or essential character from a standalone book that I wrote, just kind of walking through the scene. Sometimes they say something, sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes uh, one character will, will simply mention knowing of another character. I wrote uh, a famous romance novelist once as one of my main characters. And then since then, I've had several characters in new books be, be reading her. And, and so that, that's a, just a fun way to kind of put it all together. And I think of all my characters living within the same universe. Um, and, and that's fun for me. And then because it's a practice that I've picked up and used over time, I do have readers who are looking for those Easter eggs. And so some of them I've made a little bit difficult. So I'll get an email say, okay, I have looked all through Strawberry summer, and I cannot find any Easter eggs to anything else. And so I'll drop a little hint to them, or I'll just tell them where it is. Um, and I did write a blog about one, having to point out where it was. But I, I think I've become known for them a bit, which I love because I love just getting to look in on characters that I haven't written in years and years, and just getting to see them walk through. Sure, that's amazing. Well, I know it's it's very rude to ask an author a favorite character, but do you have? a character that's maybe the most fun for you to write? And do you have maybe a stubborn character that kind of hides their voice from you on occasion? It's a little more difficult to write maybe? Yeah, I, I think the most fun character that I've, I've written was definitely Hadley Cooper from the Seven Shores series because she was just this eternal optimist, but she was also very quirky. And so there were very few rules when writing her. And she was so likable, too, that you could just make her say the most off-the-wall thing or you could send her into what's being dressed as a chipmunk with very little explanation and the other characters would just react appropriately. And so when you have that kind of positivity and anything goes mentality, it's a very freeing experience for a writer, I believe. Um, I think, you know, the more buttoned-up characters are a little bit harder to write. Um, I think about Beautiful Dreamer, and I wrote... Um, Becca, who was, uh, sorry, uh, that would have been Entangled, Becca from Entangled, um, who was the hotel manager. And she's a, she was a harder nut to crack because she's so put together. She didn't have a lot mm -hmm. of overt flaws. And uh, she was kind of there for the other character, Joey, who struggled a bit more. And so I, I think when you have the characters that are doing well for themselves, you don't see those vulnerabilities. And it, it's kind of harder to expose them on the page. And so I think that's something that you work to do throughout the, the, the narrative. Um, and similarly in Beautiful Dreamer with the character of, of Devin. Um, but you love them all. You love them all for every different reason. Sure. I bet. Of course. That is awesome. Well, talk about, um, I mean, I think I read where you, you don't really have a big idea of what's going to happen. You kind of let the stories tell themselves to you. You kind of put blocks up there of, points you want to make there and then let those things happen naturally do you ever encounter a writer's block and if so how do you get past that right yes um, I'm what they call a, a panther which means flying by the seat of my pants as I write you know there's two <laughs> types of writers those that are super organized and have every plot point in their itself spreadsheet ready to go when they sit down to write they know every last detail they just have to put it on the page and then panthers are the opposite we make it up as we go and, uh, yeah, what you described is exactly what is the biggest problem for somebody like me, which is 
if you don't know what's going to happen next, what do you do for your work day? You can't, you can't just say, well, I don't know. And then pack it in because you have a very strict deadline and a mortgage to pay. So uh, over time, what I've learned to do is you, you just have to sit in the chair. If I just have to sit in that chair for two hours and stare at a blinking cursor, then that's what I have to do. um, Because I don't have the liberty of just saying, well, I'm not feeling creative today. And so uh, if I sit there and take away all distractions, if I lock myself out of the internet, if I put my phone away, that's when I'm usually going to be able to overcome it. And then if that doesn't work, I do have a fun game that I like to play, which is um, make a list of 10 things that could happen now. And the rule is it can be as outrageous as you want it. You know, if it comes into your head and it's crazy, you, you write it down on your list of 10 things. And hopefully by the time you get to number seven, you have somewhere to go within your scene. <laughs> I like that. That's kind of cool. That's a great trick. Yeah. <laughs> well, another thing I want to talk about, uh, a theme in a few of your novels is someone kind of choosing their career over their partner, but they eventually come back and see the decision probably wasn't the best at the time. How do you come to those? Is that something that you've experienced in the past or why, how does that theme keep kind of popping up from time to time? Luckily, no, I can say that I've, I've not been put in a situation to choose between career and relationship, but I do think I'm an ambitious person. And so I wonder, you know, hearing that spelled out, like, hey, you know, you're right. I, that is a theme that recurs. I wonder if that ambition is, 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 you know, there and present as an undercurrent in these particular narratives. But I think somebody who values their career very much and you want to, you're trying to torture a character you place them up against the two things they want most, which could be their love of career and their love of their potential partner. And then that becomes a very difficult decision. And that is always my goal, Scott, to torture my characters. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. Make them work for it. Make them work. I like that. That's right. Well, if, if you were to put yourself in one of your books, describe that character. Oh, I think she would be somebody who is probably a little bit fun, um, likes to have a, a good bit of banter back and forth, which is already pretty prevalent in my novels. But she would also be somebody who was a little bit restrained in terms of um, emotion. I'm not somebody who, if I were to get angry, I would yell and scream. And so my character would probably be a little bit more under control, which would irritate the other main character to no end. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm an I'm an even keeled I'm an even keeled ship, so I imagine that other character would be trying to rock the boat for me a little bit. I like that. And through the time you've been doing this now for quite a while, do you find yourself influenced by any other writers? Who do you? I mean, most writers I know are voracious readers. Who do you read? Who do you um, kind of? Do you pick up tips from different people? Do you just kind of like different styles? Talk about influences that you might have come across. For sure. Um, I'd say early, and Danielle Steele was probably my first intro into the romance genre. And I, like I said, I was reading her when I was way too young to be reading her. Um, but she, she was a pioneer. Um, Nora Roberts would be another one. I think more recently, Kristen Higgins and Jill Chavez have been great authors. And then colleagues of my own, I'm, I'm definitely um, always trying to pick up their book. My good friend Georgia Beers is a fantastic author, and so I gobble up all of her material every chance that I get. 
Um, Ann McMahon is also fabulous. Carson Tate, Rachel Spangler. Um, I'm, I'm a big time fan of a lot of my colleagues. And I, I think that's important because we're always learning from each other. And we go to the conferences and we swap notes and we sit at the bar and we hammer out titles for one another. And it, it's a really strong community. And I feel very, very lucky to be a part of it. But I'm also very cognizant of the fact that I don't know it all and I never will. And so I'm constantly trying to pick up tips and tricks from, from my friends and from the people that I look up to. Radcliffe, who um, owns Bold Strokes Books, was a very early influence of mine as well when I first started reading the genre. Very nice. Talk about these romance conferences. I've had friends that go to these. I've, I've, I've had Chris Rice on my show before, Ann Rice's son, mm-hmm. who's an amazing writer on his own, yeah. kind of veered into the subject a little bit lately. He says these conferences are just a hoot. The people, they have so much fun. Uh, how often do you try to get out to one of those? Oh, I go to them a lot. I've actually, I've, I've done a panel with Chris Rice, um, and it was great. Um, you know, they're, there are a handful, and some of them are just the larger romance community, and some are smaller, just geared towards lesbian women loving women romances. Um, but I'd say I probably go to a, a book conference three to four times a year. It's pretty commonplace for me, and I try to go as much as possible because I find when I leave, I'm excited to write. I, it's got my fur up. I'm invigorated. Um, but it's also like what you said. It's a who you get to see all sorts of characters, all kinds of people um, pick up books that you would never in a million years ever be drawn to. But you saw somebody cool on the panel like Chris Rice talking about his book and then you have to grab it. And suddenly you're reading something that you, you never would have thought. Um, so it's a great way to network, to meet new people. But the most important thing for me is to just to learn. And kind of going in that genre and the same vein of women empowering women in your books, uh, you've been to Clexicon. I have some friends that have spoken there as well. That's got to be a great conference to go to um, to get some inspiration as well, I would imagine. It was the most fun. Um, and I was so bummed. I, I was scheduled to be on four or five panels at Clexicon this year. And then when it got canceled, I was heartbroken. Um, so I'm looking yeah. forward to going back, but it is just, it's a powerhouse of a conference, which is a, says a lot because I, I think they're only four years old and they, they really had a lot of great programming just across the board. They had some great names there. They had some really uh, thoughtful put together panels that made us all think. Um, and then of, of course, just getting to participate. I was, I was super excited to talk about books, which is my favorite topic of all. I bet, yeah. Christine from Tello Films has been a good friend of my show, and uh, mm-hmm. I try to get her on every year to talk about that because it's just an amazing event. So, very cool. I like that a lot. Um, Me too. Talk about. Uh, we got to start wrapping it up here for future and hopeful writers out there. If you had, if you were able to give someone three pieces of advice, maybe that you wish you learned earlier in your career. What would you might you recommend to future writers? Put word, words on the page. I, I hear so many people saying, "I'd love to write a book, but I got to learn how first. And as you heard from my story before, um, I, I think the most important thing is to put it into practice. You'll learn as you go, and those pages aren't going to write themselves. And sometimes I think people use, "Oh, I got to train. I got to get ready." 
as an excuse to not actually put words on the page when they're already fantastic storytellers. Uh, second piece of advice I would say, write for yourself. Don't write for the people who are going to read it mm. because once you get that in your head, um, then you can't get it out and that stifles your creativity. And I think the last piece of advice would be, I, I, I think to understand that there's always more to learn. Never think you know it all, but, but keep your brain open and, and, and listen to other people. And, and if I could steal a fourth, I would say read as much as you possibly can um, in your genre and, and learn from the people who've been doing it for a while. Mm, very good advice. Thank you for that. And mm-hmm. what sneak can you give us? I mean, we talk about you're finishing up the third in one series now, and mm-hmm. you're thinking about doing some standalone. Do you have some character developments or some plot developments in your head? Anything you can maybe hint to on what direction you're going to go? Sure. Sure, yeah. I'm currently finishing up Tangle Valley book number three, which is Madison's romance. She It, it takes place on a vineyard. Um, three, three best friends. Um, one is the uh, owner of the vineyard and manages the tasting room. One is the, the chef of the on-site restaurant. And the current romance I'm writing is The Winemaker. Um, when this particular book is done, I am moving on to a standalone novel that's already in development and under contract called Marry Me, which will have the two main characters of a bride and a wedding planner. And I, I can't say whether the bride is going to make it down the aisle with her intended or not. Um, but you can maybe imagine from there how that'll go. And, and, and after that, yeah, I anticipate a few standalone novels. And then if there's a series in my future, maybe there's a series in my future. I don't know. I won't rule it out. Fantastic. And talk about during this, Corona quarantine time. How have you been passing your downtime? Do you binge on certain types of TV or movies or books, or how do you spend your downtime? I wish I had downtime. <laughs> uh, as somebody <laughs> with, with a with a two year old at home from daycare, there's not as much as I would like there to be. But I will tell you that <laughs> at the end of the evening, I get about an hour to ninety minutes that is mine, and I do often mm. spend it on TV. And I will. Uh, zero in on a show and for most of quarantine that hour has been spent on Downton Abbey I'm late to the game but uh, I've just finally finished that series and um, and, and sad to see it go and so I do like choosing one thing and binging it only my binging has to be in short little doses because it's all I have I understand completely of course well, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you, Melissa. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You have a gorgeous website. Let everyone know where they can find your website, and that should be able to offshoot to all your social media, but give that as well. Yeah, uh, and thanks so much for having me. I can be found at melissabraden.com and pretty much any social media site. If you search me out, I'm there too. Fantastic. You have to come back after the next book is done. This has been an amazing chat. Thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Stay on the line for me, Melissa. Guys, we're going to play out with a little song here. And then uh, Zoe and I will come back and wrap things up in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Yeah. 
All righty, we are back. That was our buddy Nico with two hearts. What a fun interview with Melissa Braden. That was cool, Zoe. Thanks for setting that up. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. A big shout out to Melissa Braden. Thanks so much for coming on. Be sure to check out her series of books. Zoe, you've been reading a couple of her books. Which one's been your favorite so far? Where should they start? Um, that's such a hard question. I know my first one was to the moon and back, which led me to waiting in the wings, which is an amazing novel. And then I also love beautiful dreamer a lot. There you go. Okay. You heard it here first. Big thank you to Jacob Talego with his mental health minute. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on that. COVID can get us down guys. You gotta, gotta think of yourself and kind of do your mental health breaks and take care of ourselves so we can take care of others and our loved ones. Tomorrow we are going to have uh, an easy breezy show tomorrow. We're going to have my friends that are on my new political show the last hundred days. Uh, my co-host Michael uh, Vega, an actor out of Los Angeles and Brandon Carmody who is has his own radio um, show out in Portland, Oregon. So they're going to be on for an hour tomorrow, and it should be a fun little chat. And, of course, we're going to have our good buddy Jake Dean Taylor with his Friday Fitness Minute. So that'll be a good show there as well. Zoe, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for running the boards. Thank you. Guys, you can follow Zoe and all the interns at Left of Straight Radio on Instagram, at Twitter, and Facebook. That's Left of Straight Radio. And then you can follow myself on Left of Straight on Twitter and Instagram. Left of Straight is always spelled L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. On Facebook, mine is the Left of Straight Show. And you can send me a friend request on my personal profile, Scott Fullerton. So we look forward to finding you guys on social media. Shout us out. Let us know what's going on in your mind. We will see you here tomorrow at 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern, right here on the Let's Straight Radio Network. Have a great night, everyone. Good night, Zoe. Bye-bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.